All right. Thanks for joining another episode of First Generation. This will be my third episode with a good friend, Human Radfar, who is a serial entrepreneur and founder. He's sold his last company to Oracle, and now he's working on Collective, which is an incredibly interesting startup that I'm happy to call an investment of mine. I'm very excited to hear about his background and his family story and sort of what he believes about the future of immigration when it comes to this country. So without further ado, I will uh, turn it over to Human and introduce himself. Thank you so much, man. I'm uh, very excited to be on the show. Uh, I think it's an important show for all of us, uh, not just immigrants, but also for folks in the business community. I've been a big proponent of immigration. 40% of Fortune 500 companies are founded by or run by immigrants. So I think as a community, we play an important role. So it's, it's great that we can highlight that together. Um, you told a little bit about my background, but um, where I grew up was Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I think we can discuss how I got there. Uh, like you, uh, I'm, a, I'm from Iran, um, but along the way, my parents, uh, when they were coming over to the States, had me in London. So a unique background. Obviously, I missed out on getting the cool accent, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll thank my parents for that later. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. The good news is that you have the British citizenship and probably the American citizenship at this point. Two of the best passports in the world, right? Used to be, <laughs> right? Um, we'll see what happens with Brexit. Yeah. I was very excited about it before, you know, you mentioned the UK, but um, I think the UK now uh, still good but uh, not quite as valuable as it was when it was uh, going to be in the EU, right? Because you had that, uh, all that access that came with that. Yeah, and pretty amazing how the topic that we're discussing, immigration, is one of the reasons why Brexit even occurred. It was sort of the desire to keep immigrants from other parts of the EU, maybe countries that didn't have as good opportunities and people migrating to London. So um, I hope things like that don't happen here. I feel like, like you said, 40% of all Fortune 500 companies are run by or founded by immigrants. And we, we, should keep, we should make sure this is the best place for talent to come across the world. So, but let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, things you've done in your career so far, and then backtrack a little bit to your family and how they decided to come from Iran and, and their stopover in London to eventually landing in Pittsburgh. Career-wise, been an entrepreneur. Uh, that's, I think, how and when we met. Then went on to be uh, a founder, backing founders as an investor at Expa, and now back to being a founder at Collective. So it's been interesting to be on both sides of the table. I know you've done that as well, um, and you've been a pretty active investor for a long time, but it gives you a lot of perspective on people. And I think you become a very different investor and a very different founder when you go back and forth. And I remember you mentioning that there were there was actually a community of people that really helped you in the early days. At dinner, you were mentioning that Bobby Yazdani, Yazdani was particularly helpful to you early on in your career, right? Bobby has been a, a big proponent of me. And I also think when you look at the Iranian-American uh, community as one segment, um, moving us all forward, he, uh, for those of your listeners that don't know his background, he, I think he was one of the first 300 people at Oracle. Uh, along with uh, Zod, who I know you know, who was the CTO at uh, yeah, Yahoo, yeah. and I think the and Nushin, they were all at Oracle. A lot of Oracle execs went on to fuel the the dot com, and so I think he started his own company. I believe at that time took it public, and you know since then has been backing companies. I mean, he was an investor in Google 
Uh, so really, really great to have wow. someone yeah. like that in our community, but also helping us out. So yeah, he's been a great mentor. Yeah, absolutely. I hear great things about him. And and so you started in Pittsburgh, went to, and then you went to school at Penn, right? And and then you ended up in DC to start to start your company, Add This, or how did that all start? So from a schooling perspective, I uh, I was in Pennsylvania both for undergrad and grad. Uh, went to Penn undergrad during the dot com and studied uh, CS uh, as well as economics. So I'd always been fascinated by what you could do with computers, right? I, I'm sure you were like me when you're younger, right? You write your first program and you're like, wow, I can make the screen change color. I can create sounds. And uh, as a person that had been creative for my you know, entire life, whether it was playing music or whether it was drawing, this was like magic to me. And, uh, but what really, really unlocked my creativity was in uh, undergrad when I realized that the intersection of technology and business could generate a new outcome. You can actually build an engine that builds engines. Right. So think about Apple at the core. We don't use an iPod anymore. Right. But that engine, Apple, can build new engines for moving forward the world. We're using the iPhone. We're using the iPad. We're using AirPods. Right. You know, and, and think about that. That's been that's all stemmed from like this homebrew computing club. And so um, I didn't really get exposure to that until I was an undergrad. I think I may have told you this story, but, um, you know, Josh Koppelman from first round. Right. Right. And so Josh. Uh, had sold his second company. He'd actually already founded a company and taken it public during the dot-com period. And his second company was Half.com. So he came in to talk about startups and he was uh, with Andy Radcliffe, who I think you also know, who had founded Benchmark, um, later went on to found Wealthfront. And the two of them were, were just talking about startups, right? Andy talking about the venture side and Josh talking about being a founder. And I remember being in the audience being like, oh my gosh, you can do this. This is crazy. Being from Pittsburgh, having your family come over from Iran, it wasn't something I got exposed to. And, and that was the, trend, the turning point for me where I started to see where, where my career, I wanted it to go. I at least need the direction. But as you know, wanting to start a company is very different than starting a company. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And, and you're never prepared for the pain and suffering you go through when you actually do go through with building it, right? <laughs> exactly. But I, I think there's, I think like creating a company, I liken it to birth. It, it, it's probably quite painful, uh, you know, giving birth, but you, you tend to forget after the fact and you just dive in and have your second kid. Um, so I respect that you're good. You're at it again. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's, it's tough as it is to build a company and, and you're, it's your second go, which is cool to see. Um, so tell, tell me a little bit about, I can probably guess, and I know that you've told me, but, um, for the audience that doesn't know, there's obviously some pretty big, uh, changes that happened in the country and how that led your, your parents to come over here. Uh, so as uh, some people might know, some people may not, there was a revolution in Iran, um, you know, towards the end of 1979, culminating, I think, in uh, early 1980. And, you know, revolutions are always recognized backwards, right? I, I talked to my dad about this, and uh, he was already seeing, I think, that Iran was not going in a direction that was consistent with what he, how he wanted to live and had intention to leave. And I asked him, actually, uh, did you know, you know, what was happening when, you know, they had the, there was a really huge uh, embassy, the U S embassy. There's a very famous period. I think at that time, I think the movie Argo showed it with Ben Affleck where they raided the embassy. I don't know if you remember that movie. And I said, yeah, did you know yeah. that, that that was happening? And, and, and they didn't because revolution is when it's done, you know what happened. Right. 
the, the and so, right. so I think they knew there was unrest, but I mean, you, as you know, on Middle East, that that's that happens, right? Um, and well, it, it also can happen here. I mean, I, I remember my dad saying on January sixth that he thought we were headed down down you know a dark path, and I don't know if you feel the same way about that. Well, I can tell you one thing. Uh, for the first time in my lifetime as an adult, I did feel like the underpinnings of what I believe to be a very stable uh, and long-lasting uh, institution were, were shaken. Uh, that was a very, very insane day. And, um, you know, I, my belief, and I think what's hard for people that aren't immigrants to understand, and I talked to friends, I mean, you, you, you and I have a lot of the same folks that we know in common. I think you have this infallible uh, belief that the United States is just unshakable, but I'm sure the Romans thought that. We all know the Persians thought that, and now we know where we are, right? All it takes is a very vocal minority to tip, because a lot of these revolutions, like you look at, uh, go look at what happened in Russia, right? It's a small group that actually is the final catalyst that are organized, right? So you just have to have enough dissent that that small group can tip the scales. It's not like everyone in the country pushes over a revolution. That's what I think is scary about that January 6th moment is that had the conditions been a little bit different, had things been different, could it have tipped? I don't know, right? Thankfully, we never have to know, right? At least now we're, we're in a different administration and you know, God will we'll be there. But it is scary. It is scary for sure. And I don't think people... Um, I think it's healthy to be scared of those things and to defend those things so that we make sure that we do stay stable. And as immigrants, I think we are the most uh, afraid because we come from environments that we've seen this, right? That's why our parents often left. Yeah, exactly. I mean, my parents left Iran, you know, similar for similar reasons. And, you know, my mom's side of the family used to run one of the largest conglomerates and lost all of it. And we all landed in, in different parts of the world, but, you know, the world changed and, and people, now think think things for example that Iran and Israel were always enemies for have been enemies forever when back in the 70s my dad's mom needed to visit a doctor in Israel and she hopped on a El Al flight nonstop from Tehran to Tel Aviv and like now that would be unheard of like that it's it's amazing how only in a span of 30 to 40 years we've seen a country that really was on pace to be a, an ally and a power of the West turn into this just very dark country with super high inflation, people have no rights, and is essentially, you know, a theocracy. I, I'm, and, and so I think that this is one of the different topics than the other episodes that I've had here, because it, specifically for Iran and our families have seen a country go from just an incredibly positive society, free society, and move in a, just a dark direction. And I, I guess I'm curious, do you feel like um, immigrants are, are, are concerned about the United States? When you think about, when you see people or entrepreneurs that are coming to the U.S., do you think they're concerned about the state of our government? And what things could we be doing, do you think, to change that perception? Uh, what things should we do to make sure that entrepreneurs do come here instead of being worried that the U.S. is moving to a more unstable place? I think there's a lot to unpack in, in that very well put question, right? Um, but let's start with, uh, with the beginning. Like a lot, so I went, when I went to graduate school at Carnegie Mellon, the vast majority of my classmates were not from the United States, not even just immigrants. 
they literally were not citizens. Okay. And so when I was in school, you know, during that dot-com period had just ended, um, everyone wanted to try to figure out how to get visas. Everyone wanted to figure out how to stay and Silicon Valley, uh, Seattle, some of these epicenters were still very desirable. That was, that was the, the environment at that time. I would say now, and you know, you're, you're knee deep in venture with, you know, the platform you're, you're building and you've been working on and expanding. So you probably see this, the environment has shifted. So those people who are coming to school here may still value the Stanford degree or the Carnegie Mellon degree and what have you, but they are more excited to go back. And a lot of that has to do in my opinion with the fact that the world is getting flatter. It's not only because mm -hmm. the internet, the world has become more fundamentally prosperous. Right? You look at when we were little kids, China was not even on the map from a GDP perspective. It wasn't not even at a all. thing. Yeah. The movies we would watch, the culture we would watch, it was always, oh, US, Russia, Cold mm -hmm. War kind of thing, right? And, and even then, if you look at it just pound for pound from a GDP, GNP, any factor you want to, the US was always winning that war. Uh, it was just that it was, that's why there was a cold war, right? There was never going to be an escalation, uh, that, that was, that was going to happen. But now China is a real contender. The EU is very stable, right? They post-World War II, they were not Japan, you know, Japan didn't exist. And so I think now you've seen the internet connect us. It's democratized building, right? Which is why we're seeing so many other startups. And so like, I mean, you, you see it, we were talking about the other day, India, Latam. I mean, do you remember when we were building companies? I mean, the valuations in Latin America are, are getting to parity. Yeah, it's with it, the United States. It's incredible. I actually, we were also talking about this about how um, we've seen immigrants that came to the U.S. for education, came to the U.S. for corporate training, and then moved back. I mean, David Velez at Newbank is a perfect example of that. And you know, there are plenty of entrepreneurs that are moving back to Latin America. Or moving there, or moving there, even if they're not from there, to build companies because the, the capital is now global and the opportunities there are just as big. And so, I mean, I guess I'm concerned because I still, I, I think that we have a very unique government. We have a very unique set of opportunities in the United States that make it very, very different from elsewhere in the world. And I also feel like we accept immigrants especially in the, the metropolitan areas more, more openly than the rest of the world. Have you felt as though that's changed? Do you feel as though you're accepted in some parts of the country, but not in others? And, you know, how, how do you feel about that? I think uh, to answer your question, I spend, as you know, most of my time in the Bay Area. I visit my family in Pittsburgh, a lot of friends in New York. So I would say, being factual, I have uneven exposure to all of America, right? I see a lot of what, what, what would you say, the, the liberal cities, liberal elites. So, um, you know, in the Centers of Excellence for Technology, I don't think that there has been any, uh, it's been an unwavering dedication to a meritocracy because, you know, in the pursuit of building excellence, right? So you want to build Google, you, you don't care where people are from, you care that they're the best. You want to build Twitter, that's the same thing. And, and that to me has been the great equalizer is that Ultimately, people want to innovate and they're willing to do what it takes, which, you know, makes them to some extent colorblind. That is the hope. Uh, of course, we're human beings. We make mistakes. But I still I still believe fundamentally that's the case. And 
you know, furthermore, what I'll say is look at, look at the way that, um, you know, you have all of these different companies all over the world growing. We're still the center, Google, Facebook, all the largest platforms that are, you know, driving the cultural zeitgeist are still based in the United States. So I still think the United States is the best place to build and run a business. I think you mentioned a couple things though, that if we don't work on, we're going to be in trouble. One, first and foremost, we have to maintain the stability of the government. We have to make sure that we continue um, to invest in making sure that there isn't any threat to that institution, because that's the base. And I think for the first time, we realized that that base could be threatened. We never even thought to question that. And then second, I think that, you know, if you look at the internet as an example, the internet was an R&D project, right? It came from ARPANET and then TCP IP was invented in 1982, but that was all on um, DARPA funding, right? A lot of those core protocols were done there. And then you know, World Wide Web in 91, but it was all pushed by universities and that was government money. And so we need to return to a culture that, you know, is spending aggressively on the advancement of research, technology, education, so that we can stay ahead because we are ahead. That's a fact. We are ahead. But don't, like I said, the world's getting flat. And so China is going to play. India is going to play. Latam is going to play. So we, it's, we have to level up our game. We can't play the same way we did in the 60s, 70s, and 80s because you know, there are more opponents. And so I, I still am a net believer. I still think this is the best place in the world to live and to build. But we also have to be realistic. We, ha we have to do better than what we did. What got us here is not going to move us forward. And, and so uh, shifting topics a little bit, uh, you're also an investor at Expa. And Expo is an early stage seed fund. And uh, Garrett Camp, I think, is one of the founders, the founder of Uber. Uh, the companies that have come out of there, how many of them are immigrant founded, would you say? And have you seen, is it, do you see more and more immigrants wanting to start companies in tech? It's funny you mentioned Expa in terms of immigrants. Uh, every one of the partners uh, that it was not from the United States. Uh, and, and, and that's current and folks that, that have left. So Naveen, who uh, was one of the original founding partners who founded Foursquare, was not born in the U.S. Uh, Garrett, who's uh, you know the originator of our platform, born in Canada. I was born in London. Roberto uh, was born in Costa Rica. Um, so all of us, Maloon, I think you know he he was he was born in Serbia. So these these are not that's that's the nature of our platform and. Accordingly, we've always backed people who are, you know, very diverse. Um, and that's not just from different countries. That's, you know, different races, creeds, what have you. I think that's just where we come from. Um, I actually am curious and I'm going to have to dive in and see what those percentages are. Because as you know, I've been a collective uh, building this heads down and have shifted to Avenger partner role. So I don't know what the latest stats are, but I have to imagine that they're pretty encouraging. Yeah, I was actually planning on finding a way that we could get venture funds to contribute this information because I feel as though if tech is cool and so many immigrants come here with ideas and they work together because they come from different backgrounds, that should be part of how the government at least views um, immigration policy. Like we have to get to a point where if you are one of the best people, no matter where you're from, we give you the resources to come to the U.S. and build your dreams. And, and I feel like that's been our competitive edge. We've had a moat around that um, for so long. But now because the world is flatter, we may lose our edge. 
Um, do you think there's anything specific policy wise that we that you would do if you had a you know a magic wand? When I lived in D.C., I, I actually spent some time um, with different folks in Congress, um, with uh, different folks from nonprofits to try to advance this agenda specifically around how we could in STEM areas in particular uh, have more liberal immigration policies because of the stats. I mean, they're just self-reinforcing. And so one of the things that I think goes without question, I think John Doerr was um, a big proponent of this, is the startup visa. And I think um, there was there was a few other folks that were really pushing this forward. Uh, that is what I would do. So every, if, if you go to a top STEM school, for example, and you're an immigrant, they should, it should come with it. When you graduate, stamp a visa. Yeah. Why would we pay all of that money to educate someone so they can go back and send them home and move forward another yeah. economy? So to me, it's, it's just foolish. In particular, if you're looking at graduate education, which tends to use, you know, a lot of the professors are subsidized through government research grants. So they're, they're funded by DOD, they're funded by taxpayer dollars. So we're literally uh, paying to educate people from overseas and then send them back. Um, it's, it's not smart. Uh, so I think that would be something you could do right away. Cause so if you give someone a visa, the United States, again, is still the best place to live and build. And I'm fairly confident that would have a dramatic um, impact in, in staving off that kind of change. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's a good point. I mean, it's, um, yeah. So, so before, before we uh, move on to collective, um, can you tell me a little bit about more about your family life and like what it was like growing up in Pittsburgh and and how the the culture or heritage that you still have from your your Persian side and and or from your Persian family and and the things that you still do or hold dear? I would love. To, I think that'd be nice for the the audience to hear. I think it's interesting because uh, when you look at folks like us in particular. I think we have an opportunity, I didn't see it as this as a kid, to pick from a number of different cultures, right? So having grown up in Pittsburgh, I think there are really great things about the culture. It's, it's you know, origin is a blue collar town, very industrious, very hardworking, very blocking and tackling, friendly place. Um, so I love that aspect of growing up and I try to maintain that. So when I work with founders, when I work with my team, you know, the roll up your sleeves, we're all this together stuff, I have to say. Pittsburgh played a huge role in that, but I also have the opportunity and I'm, I'm grateful for this. You know, we come from a very uh, strong culture. When you think about how old the culture is that we came from relative to the United States, I mean, you're talking about a, a order of magnitude difference in development. And I never appreciated that growing up as much, but there's a lot of deep underlying respect for family, uh, for, for community, um, and I think some of that comes into play uh, in everything that I do. For me, a lot of my values, I think, are shaped ultimately on how I want to interact with people from, from those two different backgrounds. That's very cool to hear. Um, okay, now let's move on to collective a little bit. So tell us what you're doing with it. And um, I'm pretty sure there is some kind of uh, interaction with immigrants. I'm sure a lot of the customers of collective are immigrants, too. Well, so uh, like Expa, Collective was started by immigrants. So I'm an immigrant, and then my co-founders, who you know very well, uh, and, and uh, to all of your audience who may not know this, Darian actually invested in my co-founder before I even uh, became the third co-founder. So uh, he's the guy before the guy, as they say. <laughs> and uh, and then, uh, so, you know, our, my co-founders, as you know, are Turkish. And more recent 
immigrants than I am. So, ooh, my co-founder actually pitched the concept to me while we were incubating and thinking about incubating something similar at Expa. And he had been a recent immigrant. I know he came from that Udemy mafia and had been a freelancer and had learned the hard way that doing business in the U.S. is unfortunately more complicated than he would have liked. And he had lost money on taxes as a result. And so that gave him that drive to say, look, there are other people like me who are going to freelance, who are going to start their own business. How can I help them avoid that pain that I had and make it easy for them to start and run their own business? And so we shared this very simple but common vision, which is this. If you look at the United States, 36% of the population has freelanced today, of the working population, excuse me. It's estimated to grow to 50%. So we spend the majority of our time at work. The majority of founders today are businesses of one. The majority of workers will be that. So how can we make that group more financially successful? Well, it's simple. Collective was formed to help them focus on their passion, not their paperwork. And the way we do that tactically is we built the first online back office for them. So in English, it's a technology and team in the cloud, and we'll handle your accounting, your taxes, your bookkeeping, and we'll form your entity for you. So end-to-end, -end, think of it almost like your core OS, your system of record, if you will, for your business. But ultimately, what we're delivering is peace of mind that pays. And a lot of our, like us, um, many of our members are immigrants or children of immigrants. So it's, it's been rewarding. And, uh, you know, that story, the topic of this, uh, of this show is definitely interwoven uh, from founding to, to where we are today. It's part of who we are. And part of our values. Yeah, and 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 so uh, freelancers sign up; they can immediately get all kinds of automation. And do you do you see? Have you seen um, an uptick because after the pandemic started? Have you seen this great exodus uh, that we're we're starting to hear about, where people are or great resignation um, actually is the right term of people resigning from their full time jobs to build their own careers and build their own freelancing jobs? Are you seeing more and more of that since the pandemic began? So it's interesting. When the pandemic began, we were very early in our life cycle as a company. And I was pretty afraid, to be honest with you, because typically the rhetoric and uh, is that when there is a recession, small businesses tend to fail. And freelancers are the smallest right. small businesses. Mm -hmm. And what we saw was that not only did we not have, see a lot of structural churn from businesses failing, a lot of the businesses that were on the collective platform grew incredibly quickly. As an example, we saw one woman who is um, a content creator go from zero to a million in revenue in the year. Wow. A million. And so it wasn't just that the number of businesses were are exploding and you can, you can look at that, um, but it was that the businesses themselves. So if you're a freelancer, right, you can only take on so many contracts. So they were just getting more offers and, Structurally, why that happened, it turns out, is pretty simple. When there was economic uncertainty, a lot of these large employers shifted their labor from full-time to contingent. So people who are existing freelancers get more business. We saw that. And more freelancers are created as a result because there's a lot of demand. And then that shift to remote, and you know that very well through a lot of your, your companies, started to uh, <laughs> really impact this because what happened is, okay, I'm a small to medium business in California, and everyone's at home on Zoom, why am I trying to hire in only California? Why don't I take advantage of all of these different states? But 
you know, as you know, the compliance of all this HR administration and onboarding employees in different states is, is a little bit painful. Why not just make them a contractor? And so those epiphenomenons just been fueling this, I would say, meteoric rise in an already existing trend. Um, so I think that's what's driving this shift in labor. And ultimately, look, it was cool to be a founder and build companies the way you and I have been doing it. And I think it's always going to be a, something that's interesting. But I think this new generation, and this is a more of a bet, is really interested in lifestyle founding. I want to be in control of my destiny. I want to go on vacation, but I want to have work-life balance. And it's appealing to them to say, why don't I take all the profit, have my own business, make a couple hundred grand a year, but I can work from Hawaii if I want. I can work from Texas. I can go do whatever I want. I think there's something about that movements like fire and whatnot um, that is, is it's much more yeah. intrinsic to the generation than I think people understand. Yeah, for, for all those listening, fire is uh, financially independent, retire early. It's a, it, there's a, a great article about it in the New York Times from about a year ago, just about how people are planning their lives around remote work, planning their lives around this new wave. I think the last question I'll ask is what, what advice do you have out there for an immigrant graduating college or in college or in high school? What advice do you have for them about coming to the U.S. or building a company? I think if I was giving advice to someone who came from another country, I'd say, um, one, you should, you're in the right place. The United States is still the best place to live and to build. And if you are a builder and you are interested, whether you have your own idea or not, um, try to get close to one of these you know, centers of excellence if you can whether it's like the Bay Area, LA, New York. I think I believe in the remote work. I'm, I'm not saying that there aren't great places to go, but I think the big takeaway is be near other people that are building. And when you go there, you'll, you'll see that there are like a lot more people like you than you ever imagined. And that's where a lot of the movement is occurring. And I think it'll reinforce. And a lot of immigrants, I think the superpower you have is that, you know, you got nothing to lose. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's an incredibly, uh, it's, it's, it's a liberating thing, right? Like you, you can only go up and to the right when you come to a country, you don't have a network, you don't have uh, that community support and use that as a superpower um, because it really is tremendous. The things you can do when you're unfettered. So yeah, that's what I'll leave you with. Yeah. And also to your point earlier in the conversation, things can change. I mean, the U.S. is currently in a, in a stable state right now, but only six, seven months ago were we, you know, on the brink in my mind. So I'm, I'm hopeful that we can see more stability and more people can come here and continue to build their dreams, continue to build great companies. And uh, I'm really you know, happy, with, happy to, to hear all the things that you're doing at Collective and how that's helping a, a whole new form of the economy. And people find freedom without having to work um, every day and, and do things that they don't necessarily want to do. So it's really, uh, it's really awesome to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Human. This has been really enlightening and, uh, well, you know, wish you all the best of luck. I'm sure I'll see you soon, but, uh, the audience here, I'm sure is very grateful for the time you put into this. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a thrill. And, uh, I'm again, really glad that you're doing this. I think there's so many great stories here. Um, that need to be told. And this is going to be an amazing platform to hear them and inspire that next generation. <laughs> That's the hope.